Sunday. Uh, welcome, and you haven't missed anything. So we're starting a new Sunday, a new series today in the book of Daniel. Our theme throughout the book of Daniel is this little phrase up here. God's sovereignty is our security. Would you say that with me? God's sovereignty is our security. And so Daniel uh, lived as a young man when we are introduced to him in the book of Daniel, uh, born in the 6th century before Christ. What century before Christ? So 2,600 years ago. That's a long time ago. Why has God seen fit to keep the record of this young man's life for us? That's an important question. And we will discover through this series that God's sovereignty is our security. Um, perhaps you are looking at current events and you're thinking that there's chaos in life right now. Things can be a little chaotic and hectic in our society. Well, they were in Daniel's day too. Daniel lived in a turbulent time where his nation actually ceased to exist and he was carried away as a captive to a foreign country called Babylon, modern-day country of Iraq, not too far away from the modern-day capital of Baghdad was the ancient capital of Babylon, uh, hence the name of the kingdom. Uh, But before he was carried away, there were a series of changes within the kings of his country. Now, his country was called Judah. Uh, A couple of centuries before he was born, uh, they had civil war between the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And they separated. And the ten northern tribes became a nation. We called them Israel. And they were ruled by just a hodgepodge of kings. But Judah was controlled by the line of King David and his descendants. The last godly king that ruled, his name was Josiah. But tragically, he was killed by Pharaoh of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho. And at this time, there was chaos in the Middle East as Babylon was in a fight for supremacy with its neighbor, Assyria. And Assyria had been the world power. And they were a cruel people. Uh, They chopped off heads and put them on stakes outside your city to... uh, taunt you and to say, we're more powerful than you. So they were a cruel people, and they had carried away the ten northern tribes into captivity and replaced the Jewish population with a Gentile population that lasted even into the days of Jesus. When you get to John chapter 4, you meet Jesus uh, talking to a woman at the well who was a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan was a Gentile Jewish uh, hybrid ethnically from those people that the king of Assyria had replaced 600 years before. Well, the southern nation of Judah, it hung on for another 200 years. Assyria was defeated. 
by Babylon, and then Babylon began pushing against Egypt and would eventually defeat Egypt. But before it defeated Egypt, it defeated Judah. And this happened in three different stages, uh, beginning in the year 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king's son in general, he attacked the city, was able to uh, carry away some of the royal family and some of the treasures from the temple. Then there were several minor rebellions uh, against the king of Babylon. And finally, in 586, Nebuchadnezzar, who is now king, his father had passed away, uh, he comes back and he destroys the city of Jerusalem, destroys its temple. But Daniel, as a young 15-year-old boy, maybe 17 or 18 at the most, uh, was carried away in that first attack in the year 605 B.C. And he's carried into a foreign country um, and has to learn foreign language and all of their fine arts, all of their literature, all of their sciences, and there are some great demands that we'll see that we put upon him. And there's a lot of crisis in this young man's life. So we'll see in this story, the book of Daniel, how God is a sovereign God in our individual lives, uh, also sovereign in his dealings with his people, so his church, and then sovereign in his dealings with nations and many kings. As a matter of fact, Daniel will go through five pagan kings before he's done. Uh, he lives into his late 90s or mid 90s, and uh, he is a political advisor to many different kings. It's a very exciting story. Now, if you watch the History Channel, here's how they go about this. All right. The book of Daniel is a fictional account of a young man and what the scribes did after the Babylonian captivity was over. They wrote the Old Testament and they wrote the book of Daniel. And we know that this book of Daniel was written after the Babylonian captivity, maybe even a couple of hundred years later, because there's so much detail that there's no way that it could have been written beforehand. So therefore, we know that it's a fabrication. Daniel is just a, a collage of maybe different characters and different events, but there's no way that it could be true. Well, if you come to the conclusion that it is the Bible, that it is the Word of God, then you stand face to face with the sovereign God. And people who don't love God don't like to come to that conclusion because they don't want to recognize God's sovereignty over their lives. Truly, Daniel is a book of Bible prophecy. Daniel lays out a panorama from the Babylonian captivity to the return of Christ. So Daniel covered the rise of the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, 
and the Roman Empire. And so this is why skeptics say, oh, there's no way he could have known all of that with such detail in advance. Well, if you believe that there's an omniscient, all-knowing God who knows the future, he can certainly breathe out his word to his prophet, and his prophet can put it down on pen and, with pen and paper. And God can preserve his word, which he has done, by the way. And so we today will learn some very important lessons as we go through uh, this series and this message on the book of Daniel. So if you're in Daniel chapter 1, um, we would like to just begin reading. So if you haven't found it, you need to find uh, the book of Ezekiel, and then turn just a couple of pages and you'll come to the book of Daniel. All right, and reading glasses are deep in my pocket, so hold on. All right, there we go. Verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he unto Jerusalem, and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now notice this next phrase. This is very important. With part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes. So, Nebuchadnezzar, he comes against the city of Jerusalem, he besieges it, he conquers it, and not only is he able to conquer the city, but he's actually able to take treasures from the temple. And he takes them away from his uh, conquest and goes back to Babylon and puts them in his God's house. See, this is a, a statement. This is like saying, my God is bigger than your God, right? How many of you ever said that about your dad to your uh, neighbor kids when you were growing up? My dad's bigger than your dad, right? Well, this is that concept. My God is greater than your God. Well, notice very carefully, it does not ascribe to Nebuchadnezzar that he did that. It says that God allowed it to take place. So on a human level, here's a pagan earthly king boasting, saying, look what I've done. But the inspired scripture says, no, a sovereign God gave those vessels to you. And he allowed you to conquer Jerusalem and to carry away captives. So on a human level, many times nation will boast against nation and say, we're better than you because we beat you, right? Uh, do you remember watching the, uh, the Gulf War uh, and our generals standing up and talking about all of our smart technology and all of our smart bombs, laser-guided bombs, and, and all of this, and how we are so superior than the nations in the Middle East, and that's why we won, because we're so much better. Well, that's a very man-centered way of looking at 
current events. And so with all of the current events that are taking place in our nation right now, don't look at them with human eyes. Look at it through the eyes of Scripture, that there's a sovereign God who's in charge of all of this. And he's bringing all things to a point in human time where every person will recognize him as sovereign God. Not just church people, but all humans will see him as a sovereign God. Now, for the individual believer and for our church, we need to be at peace in God's power, and we need to know that we're secure in God's sovereignty. Because life can become crazy, right? Can you imagine being Daniel and hearing that the last godly king died and you lament? And then all of the turmoil of these foreign powers then begin attacking your country and the rumors of invasion and then the besieging of your city and finally the conquering of the city. What uncertainty, what chaos, what turmoil for individuals. And this young man personally, because he ends up getting carried away. He doesn't get to be with mom and dad anymore. He doesn't get to be in the palace anymore. He doesn't get to be in Judah anymore. He's thrown into a very crazy situation where he has to go to a foreign land and and be subjected to all kinds of crazy experiences. So verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar commands uh, one of his government officials that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, of the king's seed. So what does this tell us about who Daniel is? Daniel's royalty. He's a prince. He's part of the, of the, of the family line that could be on the throne. So he's not used to being treated roughly, right? He's not used to being a captive, I mean, he's one of the best of the best in the land. And so now Daniel is going to be carried away. So look here, verse 4. Children in whom no blemish, uh, but well-favored, skillful in all wisdom, and cunning and knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. So we're going to see today that Daniel has a choice, and that's the title of the message today, is Daniel's choice. Is he going to trust God, that God is in charge, that God is sovereign, or is he just going to go along with current events and say, ah, I'm not in Judah anymore. Uh, I don't have any, you know, priests ministering to me anymore. I don't have to obey God anymore. I'm in a pagan land. Or does he continue to trust God in the middle of all of this chaos and this uncertainty? So you're secure in the hands of a sovereign God. So the circumstances of conquest. Here's the couple of things that we're just pointing out for your consideration. Verses 1 and 2. God's sovereignty brought about Israel's conquest. You know, nations rise and fall as the God of heaven 
sees fit. All right? Not as they see fit. There, there's a sovereign God who's in charge of all of this. So that's God's sovereignty. God allowed that to happen. But then the second half of verse 2 is that our concerns, our circumstances, are God's concern. Because he allowed his very name to be touched here. You understand why, how I got that from the text? Because he allowed his house to be broken into. He allowed vessels that were used to proclaim worship to him to be taken away. So God allowed this pagan king to touch his worship. That's touching the very nature of God. Because as we were singing today, is not God worthy of worship? Is he not worthy of praise? Not, is he not worthy of all the glad songs we can sing, all that adoration? So yes, this concerns God too. And, and this is probably where we can discover the theme. Because you'll see this over and over again. Where God in heaven will even touch the most powerful men touch their lives and they will learn to worship him even as pagan kings through the life of Daniel you might say that Daniel's life was insignificant he was just a teenager what can he really do well Daniel's life had a lasting impact for now two and a half millenniums your life can have a lasting impact if you will have the same choice that Daniel makes today in our passage that we're studying. So, these are very important to God. It's his concern as well. So let's look at the crisis of captivity, the crisis of having to serve a pagan king. Um, the pagan king sets a very high standard of who he's looking for. He wants somebody who's handsome. And you're not the judge of who's handsome. The occupying force gets to judge whether you're handsome or not. And so that's a lot of pressure. So he's got to be good looking. There's no blemish here. All right. Um, well favored. That means they're, they're handsome, strong, you know, just easy on the eye. But then skillful in all wisdom. So beauty and brains, they got to go together. Now we're getting into high standards, all right? But keep adding to that. Um, cunning in knowledge. I mean, clever. You know how to take what you know and how to apply it in life. You see, we know a lot of things today. Google knows a lot of things, but they don't know how to apply it in life that God can approve of. Right? So applying that wisdom to life in, in practical ways, and then understanding science. Wow. Wow. Do you think human nature has ever changed? 
Isn't science always seems to be the God of humanity, the God of secular humanism? Boy, we've got to have people of science around us. Well, God's people can be people of science. Daniel was. We have brains. We can think. Uh, I know some very intelligent people with doctorate degrees and astrophysics and, I mean, all kinds of things. Uh, Very intelligent people. And so Daniel needs to know his science. Um, Going on. Uh, And such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace. Now you got to know how to act in different social circumstances, different settings. Which fork is the salad fork? He has to know those practical things. Because you don't want to be clumsy at the dinner table when the king is in in the room. right? So he's got to know how to have social skills and, and move in that upper class of society. He's going to be a polished young man. So now are we getting a, a good rounded picture of how God has blessed this teenager? Wow. And so these are the standards that a pagan king is setting. And now, moving beyond that, he's got to be good in languages. That he might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the ruling class of the Babylonian Empire. They were the scientists. They were the scholars. Uh, They were the astronomers. Uh, They were the sum total of power. And so Daniel's got to catch on quick. He's got to be skilled in learning language. So these are some really high standards that this pagan king is setting upon his life. And I think that might be just a little bit of pressure, right? Um, So this is a lot of pressure for this young man. It's a crisis. uh, And these are the circumstances of captivity. So then notice here the crisis of colliding convictions. So let's look here and, and keep reading. Verses 5 and following. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. All right, so here's the the crisis of colliding convictions. You're going to say, I don't really see that. Well, for a Jew like Daniel who's godly. He's a godly young man. He has some convictions. He's not going to eat meat that was sacrificed to a pagan god. So you might think this is a small thing that Daniel won't eat 
the food that's set before him. And by the way, this is the king's ration. So Daniel is challenging not just his immediate direct report. He's challenging the throne. He's challenging the king by saying, I'm not going to eat this pagan food that's offered to false gods. I'm not going to drink this pagan wine that is given to this false god. I'm not going to do it. Therefore, he makes a request. So let's keep reading. Verse 9, Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse a liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Daniel, I'm not going to lose my head, buddy. I, I don't know that I'm willing to go that far to challenge the king. I mean... I have been given direct orders. This is the diet that you're supposed to eat. And at the end of three years, you're supposed to have a final examination how proficient you are in the learning in the tongue of the Chaldeans and, and how skilled you are in the sciences. So you need to have a proper diet those three years. I don't know that I'm willing to go along with your conviction here. That's a colliding conviction. That's where worldviews collide. But Daniel resolved. He purposed. Daniel had a spine in his back. And he said, no, I am not going to defile myself. I'm not going to, in my conscience, say that I'm going to eat food that's been offered to a pagan god. Now, you may change my name, but you're not going to change who I am. I am a child of God, and I'm going to hold on to that. And so these are definitely a crisis of colliding convictions. And he and his three friends, they close ranks together, and they challenge this. Now you're going to think, is food really a battle to die for at this point? Well, was it a battle for Adam and Eve? Sure was. You see, it wasn't food that was really the issue. It was obedience to God who said, you should not eat this tree. Um, was food a battle of convictions for Jesus when he's hungry for 40 days and the tempter comes to tempt him and says, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread? You see, it was the temptation the same one that Adam and Eve faced to live independent of God. And Jesus, the second Adam, said, this is a fight worth fighting. This is a conviction worth holding. I'm not going to eat that. It is written in the scripture. He used the Bible. And so Daniel knew what was in the scriptures that there weren't supposed to be other gods in his life. And so he had this conviction. And so let's look here um, at really some of the other things that uh, become a crisis for Daniel. All right. 
Um, notice the name changes that take place here. All right? Daniel means God is my judge. Um, then these other three Hebrew children, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, God is gracious. Uh, God uh, who remembers. All of these names are then changed to Babylonian names that have a religious significance because after all, didn't Nebuchadnezzar just conquer the Jewish God? So I have the right to change their names to the names that bring glory to my God. And so you might call this a, a crisis of identity. Oh, come on, folks. Is not identity a crisis in our culture today? It is. Because we're not willing to live under the sovereignty of God. And so identity becomes a crisis. Um, then there is a, a crisis here uh, of conviction, all right? Uh, am I going to eat this meat or not? So this is a, a crisis of religion. Is religion not in crisis in our country? You, you've got churches all across this country caving, compromising, folding, going along with the pressure to change what's in the Word of God. Hey, listen, you can change what you do in the church, but you can't change what's in the Word of God. That's why we're preaching from it today. Right? So this is our final authority. But Americans, Europeans, <laughs> any human being wants to rebel and say, I don't need a God to tell me what to do. Those Christians, they brainwash you, right? You know what? That's exactly right. We wash your brain. We wash it every day in the Word of God. You know what a family that's a biblical family does according to Ephesians 5? They cleanse themselves every day with the Bible. You know what I do each morning? I get up and I challenge myself to be corrected by the Word of God. And I cannot tell you how many times I'm sitting there and I'm listening to the Scripture and I'm like, yeah, I've got to change that way of thinking. Okay? I've got to bring my thinking into conformity with my Savior in His Word. Because I need the mind of Christ. On a, a practical level, we call that a biblical worldview. We call that a, a philosophical viewpoint, right? So there is a difference between what is in the Bible and having a biblical view on identity and on family, on uh, e economics. Uh, every area of life, the Scripture applies to it, and God tells us how to think biblically, So this is a crisis of, of conviction, moral compasses, if you will. All right. So there was a poem written years ago by the name of, of Algaron Charles Swinburne. And it's a majestic poem entitled The Hymn 
of man. And it's about the exaltation of man above God. So listen to his poem, The Hymn of Man. But God, if a God there be, is the substance of men which is man. Thou art smitten, thou God, thou art smitten. Thy death is upon thee, O Lord, and the love song of earth as thou diest resounds through the wind of her wings. Glory to man in the highest, for man is the master of things. Our culture likes to think that God is dead, but you know that's not new. That's just human nature. As far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, Daniel's God was dead. I just beat him up. I just plundered his house. My God's God. And so this is the way that people think, that human beings are gods, and that we're the all-powerful source of authority. And you see, that's what's so dangerous in our nation right now, is we're changing from a nation of laws and a constitution to a nation of personality and their power. And that's going to rip us apart. That's why you're going to find out, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who I'm going to quote here in just a moment, he challenged the, the Christians in his church in Philadelphia to be engaged locally, politically. And, you know, some of you didn't vote just a couple of weeks ago. I don't care how you vote. You need to exercise your stewardship of voting as a citizen and to apply the mind of Christ to practical things. So here we go. Um, Verse 9. Here's where we see the theme of God's sovereignty is Daniel's security. God's sovereignty is our sovereignty. Look at verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of eunuchs. All right, just in case anybody thinks that there's something romantic going on, a eunuch doesn't have male parts. They've been taken away. All right, so it's not romantic love that's being involved here. This is talking about they became good friends. And God brought Daniel into favor with this master that's referred to back here in verse uh, 3, Ashpenaz. So God brought Daniel into favor. When Ashpenaz looked at Daniel, he's like, man, I like this kid. Man, look at this. He's smart. Oh, man, that was wise how he answered that. And it seems like every time that Ashpenaz looks at Daniel, it's just like more and more. Man, he's the cream of the crop. He's the best. God's doing that for Daniel. And that's the sovereign touch of God right here. God brought him into favor. Therefore, when Daniel challenges the king... A sovereign God is going to protect Daniel. So Daniel makes a request. Ashvin says, I don't know if I want to lose my head. So Daniel then has some courage here. All right? So let's look at our third point. The courage of Daniel 
and his friends, verses 8 through 16. So let's look at this, all right? So let's look at the test that's proposed here. Verse 10, And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then we shall make, you shall make me endanger my head to the king. Then Daniel said to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs, so who was that? That's back in verse 2, that's Ashvanes. Uh, prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So Daniel says, okay, I understand your predicament. I don't want you to lose your head either. So here's what I propose. Let's do a 10-day test. You let us eat vegetables while they eat meat. Let us drink water while they drink wine. At the end of 10 days, get the two study groups together and do a comparison. And if we look like we're wilting away, okay, it's going to be your way. But, if we look better, let us keep on doing it. And so this is the test that has happened. So verse 14, So he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. There's a human side to this. They applied themselves to the academic subjects, and then they relied upon God to give them things that they could not possibly come up with their own, and that's the understanding of visions and dreams. So God begins to work prophetically in Daniel as a young man. Um, but Daniel applies himself. So, all right, here we go. Uh, junior high, high school students, got to apply your mind to the books that are set before you for school. Just got to do it, all right? Work your hardest, all right? Science may not be your go-to subject. Mathematics may not be what you love to do, but you should know how to do it. And so these four youths, these teenagers, they certainly did. And so the conviction here, this is the first point here. Convictions must drive our lives. How many of you want to be remembered as somebody who did something significant in life, that your life has value? Raise your hand. Yeah, all of us, right? I don't think that has changed since the time of Daniel. So God is going to make Daniel's life count. And God used his sovereign hand to bring him into favor with Ashpenaz and Melzar that's mentioned. And God gave them the increased abilities academically and spiritually. And God prospered them. 
Convictions must drive your life. Daniel had a conviction. No, I'm not going to defile myself. You know what? The church of God needs to have a spine. We need to have some convictions. We need to think biblically and not be afraid of our biblical convictions. Now, here's the challenge that I might get at this point. Pastor, that's fine because you sit in your study all week and we pay you to read the Bible and to get into commentaries and and think spiritual thoughts. That's great for you, Pastor, but you don't work where I work. You don't face the trials and the temptations that I face. All right, granted. Now, I have worked in the secular workforce until I became a pastor. I worked bivocationally for a broker. I worked bivocationally for a tree trimming company. Wasn't much intelligence in that. My job was to go out and make an 11-foot circle until it was bare dirt. Right? And um, so I had a college degree to make a dirt circle. Right? And... um, 100 people around me every day as we met in the yard and to hear all that cussing and swearing, uh, to be invited to a birthday party of my foreman. You want to feel the pressure to belong to the crew and then they taunt and tease you because they know that you're a pastor and say, oh, by the way, there's going to be some female entertainment there. Now I can't go, right? And so now you're the social outcast you got to have some convictions. You can't surrender. And so, you know, listen, pastor, that's good for you, but not for me. Can you say that about Daniel? You see, this next point, convictions can be reasonably accommodated. Look at verses 9 through 16. The 10-day test was accommodated. All right? And... Then verse 18, now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them, and among them all was, um, among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. If you have conviction, yes, you're going to come into conflict. You will. A person of conviction is going to come into conflict. I can't take that away from you. It's just going to happen. You're going to be tested. But there's reasonable accommodations. Some of you think that you can't get out of working on Sundays. But you can. It's law. It's national law. It's state law. Some of you think that you can't witness on the job. You can. Now, you can't take, you know, you got to do that on your breaks and your lunch hour. You can't do it during your work time. But you can witness. Some of us think that we can't have a witness in public school. But we can. You see, the world today says we don't want the church to have anything to do with politics. Separation of church and state. And they scream it and scream it and scream it. But... That's not what the framers of our Constitution meant, that we can't have any interaction or any part of that. It doesn't mean that if you're a Christian and you have convictions that you can't 
Live the way that you are. You see, uh, Pastor John Vaughn, who's a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, he was a chaplain for the Greenville City Police Force. And uh, they were going through cultural sensitivity training. Right? And um, the chaplain that was in charge of that directly challenged him on his convictions. And Pastor Vaughn just said to him, Hmm, got a question for you. Is this a pluralistic society? Are things tolerated in our culture? Well, of course this is a pluralist society. Of course we're tolerant people. You expect me to live by your convictions? but God expects me to live by my convictions. You say that you have the right the way that, that you want to think? Well, then I have the right the way that I ought to think. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to do that. Oh, okay. End of discussion. Convictions, they can be reasonably accommodated. Do you know why churches could not be legally shut down during the pandemic? Because of this principle right here, it's called reasonable accommodation. Now, the reason why we didn't have service wasn't because the government told us we couldn't. It's because at the beginning, we were trying to work with our government, respect them and, and submit and help them. But then it became very clear that this whole situation was being abused. And then we said, nope, we're not going there. All right. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that. But listen reasonable accommodations. If they can pack 300 people on an airplane, you can fill a church. Amen? And so we can meet. Now there might be risks, and each one of you is free as a believer before God to assess your risks. You're here, so praise God. But Daniel, it was reasonable accommodation. Daniel proposed this temporary situation. Let's evaluate it. Let's test it. And if it works out, then let's do it. Folks, we can do this because God is a sovereign God and we're secure in him. So trust God when your convictions are tested by others. <laughs> Verse 10, Daniel, that's a great idea, but I don't want to lose my head. All right. So he was being challenged on his convictions. Convictions can be accommodated and submitted to God's sovereignty. So let's bring this message to a conclusion then. All right, let's look at the closing verses. The counsel of wisdom, it's a gift of God. God blessed Daniel, verses 17 and 18. As for these four children, God gave them. There's the blessing. At the end of the days, none was found like them. The king said, hey, this is the best. This is the cream of the crop. Now, let's look at verses 19 through 21. And the king communed with them, and among them was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel, what's this next word? Continued. That means Daniel had a lasting impact. His life counted. And so it gives you here unto the king Cyrus. All right? Cyrus is a Persian. So 
though kingdoms changed and Babylon went out of power, God continued to promote and to preserve Daniel. So Daniel exercised his choice. I won't defile myself. He knew that there was a sovereign God and that he was secure in his hands. Today, you might intellectually hear pastor preach, there's a sovereign God. Now it comes down to a practical choice. Will you trust that sovereign God and live by the convictions that God sets forth in the Bible? Do you think Daniel's going to be an up-to-date, practical book for us to study? I think so. We've got a lot to learn from this young man.